my father's an artist and my mother's an artist. I grew up surrounded by their art. I grew up surrounded by, you know, art from Matisse. And on the other end, my grandparents on my mother's side were anthropologists. And that kind of connection of art and anthropology, it created some sort of fertile ground that I think my love for ceramics grew from the utility and that creative side. I'm Carolyn Hadlock, Executive Creative Director at Young & Laramore, and this is The Beautiful Thinkers Project, a podcast where I ask founders, creators, leaders, and visionaries how they bring their ideas to life. As we enter these conversations with thinkers across disciplines like art, science, and business, we'll learn a little bit more about the practices and identifiers that create beautiful thinking, something defined so individually, but so universally recognizable. Welcome to The Beautiful Thinkers Project. Today, I'm talking with Alex Matisse, and he is the founder of East Fork Pottery. East Fork is a beloved brand and has quite a following, and I'm very excited to chat with you today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You guys have been on such an aggressive growth streak. I mean, when you very first started this back in 2009, what were you hoping or thinking it would become? Yeah, we had a a very different founding than a bunch of the other direct-to-consumer brands that are out there right now that we kind of play with. I founded the company as a potter after finishing three years of very formal apprenticeship after dropping out of college. And I was simply making pots and selling them to collectors in the Southeast and doing some kind of small gallery shows and where we're located in North Carolina, there's this long history of pottery and it's endured. So when I moved to the South, I had done ceramics and pottery sort of throughout my early education. It was always the one medium that I really loved. Went to college, uh, was miserable, got into a a pottery class and um, a year and a half later dropped out to do these apprenticeships. So the only thing that I knew I wanted to do was make some mark on the world, as a a lot of people do. I had a a lot of drive that I think came from some family legacy and, and that history, which maybe we'll talk about later on. But now we operate a factory. It's very industrial. But back then, it was a potter's wheel. We made pots in a kind of vernacular um, that spoke to my training uh, and these histories of pottery makers, potters that came before me. And um, then a friend joined named John, who's our third co-founder and business partner. He had finished an apprenticeship and came out and said, what do you think about working together? And it was a very kind of unusual format because because normally, you know, it's a it's one person, they're making their work, they're selling it. And then Connie started essentially kind of following us around with uh, an iPhone and the three of us started to hatch this plan to take the thing that we love that we had dedicated our life to and try to kind of grow that to speak to a wider audience. And around that time, ceramics was having another moment in the sun. And we felt like we had something to add to that conversation. So we put together a little money, uh, bought a gas kiln, and just kind of flipped the switch immediately from what we were doing because we would sell our pots in this 
format of you make, you make, you make, you fire them, you bring them out of the kiln, you get them ready for sale, you send out a postcard and people come directly to you and buy. So we did that, but for this new line of pots and normally at say nine o'clock when we open, there's, you know, maybe 50 people there, could be a hundred people there waiting. And when we debuted the new line, what you see as East Fork today, nobody showed up. It was just crickets. And we just sort of sat there like, what, what did we do? But uh, eventually it started to, to gather momentum and we couldn't keep up. What we wanted to retain in the pieces was the formal quality. We did want to capture the bones, the meat of the pieces that we had learned because we learned to throw in a very strict, rigid way. And our teachers had all sorts of funny things they would tell us that were things their teachers told us, like bones should have a skeleton, they should have bones, they should have flesh, they should have skin, they should have muscle, they should have the fullness of the moon. All these things we kind of took in. And so the design of the pieces is like the, the bowls are bowls that we used to make by hand. Now, like the interior surface quality is smooth. You don't see throwing lines because we didn't want to fake. We don't want to say this looks like it's a handmade piece, but right. it was made on a machine. We right. don't, we're not interested in any kind of pulling that over on someone. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it because they are sculptures. I mean, they are in their own right. Talk about your silhouettes. I know your mug is sort of has a, a pretty big cult following, but how did you come about the silhouettes, the actual shape? And then also you also leave an exposed area of the clay. And I'm just curious how you came to those two creative decisions. Yeah, that mug for us was maybe one of the largest departures because we used to make mugs that were curvy. They were round. They, you know, a couple different varieties of mugs. And looking at like the typical diner mug that, uh, that you see when you go to diners across the U.S., um, the part of the mug that I think is the most unique is the handle, which was designed off of a pulled handle, which is something that if you're a potter, and I don't know how many people have seen it, but one of the ways you make a handle is you take a small stalk of clay, a little kind of sausage of clay, and you smush it into the top of the mug, and then you wet it, and then you pull it, and you gradually pull the shape of that handle and the taper. And... The handles that we made had a, a really wonderful feeling in the hand, and we wanted to preserve that. And so we, we kept a very straight silhouette, and we added this beautiful handle, which we worked on and worked on and worked on. Yeah, and then the exposed rim was really, um, I mean, one, the clay is beautiful. Like, we, we made very distinct choices in the, in the clay that we use. And, uh, but really, the reason that that rim is exposed is because the first glazes that we used weren't incredibly stable and they shivered, which means they cracked when they went rounded over that surface. So we thought, well, we'll just wipe that off. And it stayed, it stayed with it. So and it's a beautiful, it just makes the colors, you know, really pop. And, mm -hmm. but they're also a little heavy, the mugs themselves. Is that intentional? Or did you want to design a weightiness into them? Yeah, that is, that is intentional. We want something that you can knock over I mean, if you drop it on a concrete floor, it's probably going to break. But if you drop it on a wood floor, it might not. So that certainly, that's part of it. We're constantly refining the weight and honing it in. And yeah, we, we want the mug to feel substantial in the hand. Yeah. But I'm curious to, I know the other thing that in um, North Carolina where you guys are, 
You're also very invested in the community. One, it seems like having this revival of manufacturing and this artisanal approach, but then also, you know, servicing your community and and making um, the people around you whole. And I, I would love to hear you talk about both of those things because it's kind of baked into your model, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um, the first part around the manufacturing is simply it's wildly exciting thing to learn about an industry that is almost completely gone in the U.S. Yeah. Essentially, all of the big ceramic manufacturers who are making dinnerware have closed. But to me, that's incredibly exciting. And I love the challenge and our whole team loves the challenge of, of learning something kind of from the beginning and, and walking into something with a beginner's mind. Um, offering a good manufacturing job is also really important to us. So to me, if you're going to grow the business, I mean, we, we're coming at this as artists and yeah. not business people. So there has to be more to it other than you know, just, just the bottom line. So that's something that really motivates us and inspires us is, is to keep making the work better, to keep offering, you know, as we can, as we grow better, better pay, better benefits. Um, how can we make what is typically a blue collar job not feel so blue collar all the time? We have a chef that cooks two staff meals for everybody in the company twice a week and we'll do it every day when we can. We want to offer childcare as soon as we can. So we're just at the cusp of growing. This past year was actually the first year we've posted a profit and since we've started this growth and it wasn't much of a profit, but next year should be much better. And as we sort of find our footing and become more financially stable, we can start rolling out more of these things that, that really excite us. Yeah, but a percentage of your sales goes towards a nonprofit in your community. Is that right? Yeah, so we do a few different things. We have a values team who really sort of focuses in on who we're supporting, why we're supporting it, what's our money going to go to. We like to work with smaller grassroots organizations where the smaller dollars that we're able to raise go further because we're not, you know, giving away millions of dollars, we're giving away $25,000, $50,000, but that can be a game changer for a small nonprofit doing really really important big work in their community. It's part of our DNA at this point. Yeah. I mean, if you guys look at this, you know, direct-to-consumer model that you are and a lot of other startups, it kind of has infused this purpose-based branding. And I did see um, that you guys just did the, the Pinto line with, is it Samin Nasrat? Mm-hmm. Yep. We have started to, to think about how we can collaborate with more people people with larger networks than us. We love Samin. Our kids love her show. They watch it. We've watched it, you know, multiple times. And uh, we got an introduction to Samin through another friend, um, a woman named Sana, who has a spice company called Diaspora. And yeah, she, she made that introduction. Then over six months, we, we nurtured the relationship. And uh, that was really Connie doing that work and Samin said, you know, here's some colors that I like. There's this, oh, what was it? A, a dahlia from her garden. There's this kind of antique brass. And we went back and forth with glazes and then eventually settled on Pinto. 
Well, and I love uh, how you guys talk about these things are made to be used. I think there was a line I read somewhere about a daily object that has a lifelong use. The pieces were always made to be used. That's why I fell in love with pottery, because it was such a beautiful, tangible thing that uh, it was sort of high and low combined. So that utility has always been part of it from the very beginning. We sell them to people that have them in their cupboard and use them every day and throw them in the dishwasher. Yeah, I know. I still can't bring myself to put mine in the dishwasher, but uh-huh. but I, I know that it's dishwasher safe. So um, I'd love to hear, I mean, the color, the colorways you guys do are so beautiful. And I'd love just to hear the role that color plays and how you come up with it and, and how you, um, even the names like Night Swim is such a great name. So I'm just curious, yeah. like, how, what role does color play in, in, the, in the creative process? Color, when we made the switch from firing in the wood kiln to firing in the gas kiln, suddenly the world of color opened up to us in a way that we hadn't explored it before. And Connie is, is at the moment um, the one who really is spearheads all of that work, my wife. Mm-hmm. She has to kind of get out ahead of the trends because by the time, say, a color is trending, our development cycle is maybe six months, maybe more. And now our planning cycle is really a year long. But um, it's also, there's a bit of, there's an organic process to it because the way that those colors are formulated, we're mixing different oxides together. We're mixing different stains and we're coming up with a kind of range of colors. And then Connie's sort of picking and choosing. So she'll start with paint swatches and say, I want to sort of hone in here. I want to hone in here. And then Kyle, our glaze chemist, will start mixing up these samples. And sometimes new things emerge from that that you weren't expecting. But for the most part, they they get really close to what we're looking for. So yeah, the, it's amazing to see over the last you know three, four years, how many colors now exist, yeah. how people put them together and all of these beautiful unexpected combinations. And we look back on some colors and we're like, whoa, that color really wasn't a very good color. But <laughs> It's part of the story. And, um, do you have a favorite? Mm, I, I do like Night Swim. I liked a color called In the Pines, uh, which was another green uh, that we did a long time ago. We also did a color called Harvest Moon, uh, which is beautiful. Um, it's kind of rich, umber, yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Favorites are hard for me. I, I was a big fan of Soapstone. Uh, and I'm, if I have my way, it will come back someday. So. <laughs> well, hopefully I would think as, as the CEO, you'll have your way and you can bring yeah. it back. Yeah. Yeah. And then you guys have your small batch. Is that also in the gas or is that in the That's wood? also in the gas. Okay. That's also in the gas. And the small batch is our very first apprentice now heads up small batch. Uh, it's just, it's just one person, Cade Allman Cook, um, who does that. And they, um, came to us in 2011 or 12 and um and now they lead small batch and we have a lot of uh we'd love to grow that so small batch is the handmade component and they'll make 400 pieces and then we sell them online is the hope to create an apprenticeship program that's ongoing yeah we actually have a meeting coming up to kind of vision what we want for small batch cuz there's a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different ways that it could go I get excited about having a larger apprentice program. Mm -hmm. Kate is really interested in taking this into schools, doing outreach with it, 
doing more community work. So in, in a few years, I hope to see it really expand, really grow. That's awesome. I feel like apprenticeships is kind of coming back as a concept, which I think is it's exciting to see. And it's, I think it's a really good just citizenship thing to do for the community as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Two things that are at the heart of your brand and what differentiates it are food and art. So can you talk about both of those and how they kind of played a role in your development and your sort of legacy and your formation? Yeah, yeah. Food, it's sort of the reason that we make what we make. And it's always been a part of what we do. And more than just food, hospitality. When it was just a few of us in Madison County, we would break for lunch every day and we would sit um, underneath this old apple tree outside the little farmhouse, very romantic on a picnic bench. And we'd all have lunch and one person would cook every day. So when we moved into the office or the office, the factory where we are now in the office, we built a commercial kitchen and we did that. Yeah, It's in our DNA. Connie grew up, um, food was incredibly important to her her family. Um, she's an amazing chef. We'll open a restaurant someday that feels like an in- inevitability. Once we get through this little thing, we're not really interested <laughs> in opening a restaurant. Right now. Yeah, one thing at a time. And then talk about art. I mean, I know you come from long artistic roots, but how did that sort of play formation for you? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the art is probably less of a direct, there's less of a direct tie. For me, my relationship with Matisse, who's my great-grandfather, is more complicated. And I think that the influence there was really, it was an intensity of how you approach something. Mm. There was a, a, this drive in myself, this kind of competitiveness to do something of some scale. And what I love now about East Fork is that the people that know East Fork don't know necessarily that there's a connection to, to Matisse. And that has faded into the background, which is really, for me, it feels like this success. Because even when I made pots on my own, people would, um, they'd say, you know, hey, can you sign the bottom of this? Can you do this? And I always felt like there was this kind of, well, it's interesting because of this connection. And now East Fork has blossomed into this thing that's just in its own really, right. It's its own. Yeah. yeah. And that's really wonderful. But your parents are both. Was your dad is this, was he an artist? My father's my father's an artist and my mother's an artist. Yeah. Um I yeah, I grew up surrounded by by their art. I grew up surrounded by, you know, art from Matisse. And my grandfather on my father's side was an art dealer, Pierre Matisse, uh, who had a gallery in New York. On the other end, my Grandparents on my mother's side were anthropologists, and that kind of connection of art and anthropology, it created some sort of fertile ground that I think my love for ceramics grew from, um, the utility and and that creative side. So, yeah, because I think, isn't pottery one of the oldest art forms? I mean, it dates back. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like the... I mean, people have always had a need to scoop water out of a creek and, <laughs> yeah. and hold something. So, Well, that's cool. I love the anthropology tie-in. That makes sense. And I think it's interesting. I mean, when I knew about you guys, I didn't know about the connection. So yeah. I, I would say mission accomplished on that one. Yeah. But it, it does provide just an interesting sort of lens in on, on, the, yeah. on the work that you do. So you talked about restaurant possibly. I mean, like what other things are you hoping to accomplish with the brand? Uh, right now, we're in a small factory 
we want to build a campus. We want to build a place that feels like a, a forever home. And um, over the next few years, we'll be working on that, putting that together. I mean, I look in the future and um, I look at companies like Patagonia and that's the type of organization that we're building towards. But at the same time, we're, we're all realists and those organizations aren't built by setting out to build a billion dollar company. And so we're not necessarily interested in that, that mindset. I mean, we've, we've talked to venture capitalists. We've, we've sort of gone down that road, who knows what the future holds, but um, we hold our independence pretty strongly and we want to build something of size and scale, but, uh, but we want to do it while retaining the sort of the soul of the thing. Yeah. I read somewhere that you guys were hoping this company would go for hundreds of years and that there would be a long legacy. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it sounds kind of silly to say something like that, but yeah, we, we'd like to build something that, that is enduring, that is around, that means something to people. You do seem to stand apart from the, the direct-to-consumer kind of you know, brand that is just on this accelerated trajectory and is just all about growth. But I think it's interesting to hear about Patagonia as a sort of a, a lighthouse for you guys because they have grown intentionally over time. Exactly. And that's, you brought this up earlier, other companies, a lot of companies are sort of starting to take a stand. And when it's not baked into your, your DNA in that, in that way, when it's not your core kind of operating principle, people sniff that out mm-hmm. and they, they smell it. They know what a company is trying to do. And, and Patagonia is an example of a company that it is just, they, they live it and they breathe it. One day I'm going to get Yvonne in a room and sit down <laughs> or, or what I really like to do is go fly fishing with them because I'm a big fan. I know. I saw that. I was going to ask about that. Have you been doing that since you were small? Yeah, I've fished my whole life. Yeah, it's like the one other thing that I've just had some kind of unexplainable love of. <laughs> yeah. Well, with the Patagonia, I love their worn wear um, mm-hmm. collection. And, and I think about even like your guys' seconds, you know, is sort of a, an interesting parallel to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I was lo- reading this morning that there's like a um, connection to the Asian ceramic Potter who who brought this idea of everyday utility and beauty um, back in like the 40s or I don't know what year that was. Um, But I've always been really interested in the concept of Mm wabi-sabi. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's just such a beautiful thing. And that really kind of manifested itself in in pottery and just like showing the use and showing the like celebrating the use. Yeah. There's a lot, I mean, we could have a whole podcast about this. Um, that came from, uh, there was two potters that had a relationship, one English, one Japanese, Hamada in Japan and Bernard Leach in England. And they're kind of considered maybe the godfathers of a specific movement. And, um, yeah, wabi-sabi is the, is the sort of term is the word that, that a lot of people recognize. For Hamada in Japan, a lot of that came from looking at old pots, really old pots, old tea bowls that were made for utility, but made with so much life and so much movement. And they were made so quickly mm-hmm. um, because they were made to use. And the, you know, the people that were making them needed to make a lot. 
that art form became really sort of recognized and celebrated and these tea bowls started selling for incredible sums of money. Yeah. Potters in Japan who were sort of part of these, these lineages and uh, these, these old families where a potter would train his son and the son would take it and they would go, you know, generation to generation. Bernard Leach back to England met Hamada and they struck up a, a friendship and, um, there was this sort of passing of information, of ideas back and forth. And Leach saw old English slipware pottery and saw within that a lot of similarities to what was happening in Japan. And so the two of them kind of bounced around a lot. And um, the potter that I worked for was a sort of quote unquote disciple of one of Bernard Leach's most famous apprenticeships, uh, apprentices. So it's, this, it's a family. Um, and all of these apprentices kind of spread out and, uh, and they have their own apprentice and, uh, or apprentices. And it's a lineage that sort of is passed, passed on. And, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And John and I, when we started thinking about this growth, we're really thinking, how can we do something remarkably different from, from this lineage? How do we sort of break out of that um, and add our own thing to this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I know we're almost at time. The last question um, I would ask that I ask everybody is how you would define beautiful thinking. That is what this blog is, is all about, sort of celebrating and finding. Yeah. People always ask me, how do you, do you miss your craft? Do you miss what, you know, your, the work that you used to do? And for me, like that idea of beautiful thinking, the idea of craft um, comes down to how much devotion do you put into the work that's your everyday, the work that's right in front of you? And so for me, craft, as which I sort of, to me, it's the same as beautiful thinking, uh, is there's a craft of growing this business. There's a, there's a sort of beautiful thinking way of, of approaching anything you do. And uh, a lot of it comes down to sort of challenging the ways that people are doing things before and I'm just yeah being passionate and driven to do something that's that's extraordinary that's for other people that um that feels new and different to me it's really is simply about the intensity that you you bring to even something that is mundane or typically not thought of as um as a craft or something that you would think beautifully about well, this has been such a delight. I really enjoyed talking with you and hearing more about the brand. And you guys have done a phenomenal job of marrying old world with new world. And, and the idea of intentional legacy, I think, is, is, uh, is very inspiring. So I'm excited to watch you guys continue to grow. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found something that inspires you to think strange, different, new, and beautiful thoughts. This podcast was created and produced by Young & Laramore, an independent agency focused on helping national consumer brands take a stand. To explore more about today's conversation and all of the other thinkers I've spoken to, check out our blog, The Beautiful Thinkers Project, or follow us on Instagram at The Beautiful Thinkers.